North Central Florida and God's country. And the Mellon Law Studio, one of our great sponsors. Mellon Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators. And we're protected 24-7, 365 by another great local business, Crime Prevention. Randy Elrad and John Pastore, get your security needs locally. It's always best. And all of our great sponsors that you see uh, uh, scroll by the screen and on our website who are supporting the Ward Scott Files and our community forum and discussions. Uh, right now, we are um, anticipating a uh, hookup with Phil Kirpin out of D.C. here in a minute or two. Uh, sometimes he's en route and stuck in D.C. traffic, whatever that nightmare that might be. Usually we get it going, and it's always uh, uh, educational and a lot of good research coming out of the American commitment, which Phil Kirpin's the president of. So I have a little time here to uh, chat with you about really whatever I want to chat about while we try to hook up with Phil. I'm going to talk about the Boston Celtics. Now, you know, the Boston Celtics were left for dead in this playoff against the Miami Heat. They had lost three games. But they came out in the third quarter of the game before the one last night and played differently. Played the way they really should have been playing all along, aggressively and confidently, and up to their talent, because they are more talented than the Miami Heat team. Practically all connoisseurs of basketball recognize that. And the Miami Heat, though, through coaching and Band of Brothers, Esprit de Corps and all that, have been able to compete rather successfully up until that third quarter. And I was watching that run by the Celtics, and all of a sudden I realized these guys have found themselves, and from here on out it's going to be a different series. I see Phil checking on. So you keep your eyes. I don't know if Phil's a Boston Celtic fan. I know I see his Mets deal back there behind him, but uh, Phil, I'm just filling in a little bit about the Boston Celtics. I'm predicting that they will come back and win. Um, I I really, you know, they, you wait and see. Now they're going to come down to Miami and play next. And if they beat Miami there, they go back to the seventh game and in Boston gardens, and they ain't going to be able to hear yourself. Yeah, that's, a big, that's a big if. You got to think that Miami's going to show up for game six. Uh, you got to. You got to. Otherwise, it's a. Uh, I mean, it sort of looked like they were punting game five, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, they loafed that third quarter. I was just talking about that before you came on. I saw that run. I said, uh oh, you let these guys believe in themselves, and then that's not going to work. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really watching much after, you know, I mean, I'm a Knicks fan, so. Yeah, yeah, I figured have, you to have that game right there. And uh, for Brunson not to take the shot after the game he had down two with less than a minute left and to throw it away, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's always great to see on the Ward Scott Files, Phil Curtin's the president of American Commitment, a think tank in D.C. that does a lot of good thinking and writing and publishing. And today we're talking about, Phil, I got to be honest with you, this uh, discussion about medical profession and COVID and all has had no end of curiosity about its long-term and short-term and uh, 360 degree effects on everybody. I had a retired neurosurgeon on last week who interestingly can thinks it may have contributed to an increase in physician, physician suicides um, over a despair 
because of the following. This thread I'll introduce to you, you may already know about it. Because of so many parts of the medical profession are corporately owned now, and the individual physician is no longer in charge of his own office, so to speak, he was asked rather dictatorially to vaccinate, and some of them weren't into being vaccinated, but it was either our way or the highway. And so they really were outside looking in during this crisis because they made a choice based upon their medical expertise. It is one of the hypotheses of the retired physician. Well, and he I think that, the, um, he's traced that and finds that uh, that's interesting. I'll pass that along to you. Well, I think the I think the consolidation of the healthcare sector into you know larger and larger hospital systems and uh, the domination of the largest corporate entities in our healthcare system has been a really huge negative across the board, not just during COVID, but for everything. I mean, it's uh, you know we're we're at a point now where you know who how, how does everything in healthcare get decided? It's the gigantic hospital systems and the gigantic insurance companies and the gigantic pharmaceutical companies and the even more gigantic than all of them federal government, and they kind of hash it has nothing to do with what's actually in the interests of patients and individual doctors for the most part are not the decision makers anymore for, for patient care because they are constrained by these systems and the vast majority of them are becoming employees. And historically, of course, doctors were small business people. They ran their own practices. Um, that's becoming more and more difficult with the way everything's become bureaucratized. And you know, th- th- this was already a long-term trend, but it was really kicked into high gear by Obamacare and uh, even more so by what we saw go on during COVID because um, – you know, the lifeblood of our medical system during COVID became government bailout payments, essentially. Uh, the actual utilization for healthcare for everything besides COVID collapsed. It was one of the reasons that we're seeing so many health problems now is you get so much deferred healthcare. People who just didn't go because they didn't want to deal with the nonsense of the masks and uh, the lockdown sort of crazy environment and the panic and everything else. So, you know, we, we had a lot of people who died at home of heart attacks and strokes because they didn't go to the hospital because of COVID. So, I mean, we had a, we had some major, major problems, but I agree that uh, a lot of what went wrong was driven by the fact that um, most clinicians are no longer really making their own decisions. They're sort of cogs in a wheel now, and uh, it's it's a huge, huge problem and one that I'd really like to see. Republicans develop some solutions to because on, on healthcare, as you know, they 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 never seem to do anything when they get power. And you know, they told us how many times they were going to repeal Obamacare and they were going to fix the healthcare system, and then they came in and did um, really really nothing, as far as I can tell. And uh, you know, I, I would like to see them kind of say, look, you know, if we get power again, we have the House, Senate, and the White House, uh, we're gonna we're gonna blow up all of these massive bureaucracies, uh, including, of course, the government bureaucracies, you know, at FDA and CDC and HHS, but not only the government bureaucracy, they've got to fix the drivers of consolidation uh, in these giant healthcare systems and the huge insurance companies also. So I, I, I would definitely agree with that, that that was one of the major problems uh, during COVID, but I think it's just become one of the major problems in American healthcare period. Well, you know, it's interesting with the presidential stuff coming up, you, you hope they put that out there for people to honestly debate and investigate. Um, we have a former U.S. representative from our area, Ted Yoho, on once a week. And he is so frustrated, as are many of his colleagues, that nothing gets done in D.C. You know, you have these committees upon committees upon committees. You have investigations. If they're not uh, of the right uh, political persuasion, they get covered up. And then 
you have another investigation and nothing gets done. And that soaks up all the time of the real meaningful discussions that should be taking place that never take place. And meanwhile, uh, things kind of rot. And I don't know, you know, DeSantis here, I'm just kind of wandering around here with you. Yeah. DeSantis here in this, because um, I'm reading your article here, it's you and Stephen Moore wrote, whom I haven't met, by the way, um, uh, agrees with you, I'm sure, that, you know, school closures were really uh, uh, a negative. And out on the campaign trail, I'm sure he's going to bring that up. I don't yeah. know how that's going to resonate with the country. Uh, I don't know if you have any research or opinion about that, but um, he's definitely one who took a stand um, right opposite of some of these Democrat-controlled states and cities and all the above. What's your take on that, sir? Well, you know, I think the politics of it are uh, a little bit, you know, I, I think the actual facts of it are pretty easy. The places they closed schools made a huge mistake. They harm children educationally, social, emotionally, developmentally. They're going to be major economic harms. I, I think that's all pretty clear. It's so clear now that the people who did it are trying to lie and rewrite history. And so you got like Randy Weingarten, who's probably the villain number one on school closure, saying, oh, no, I always wanted schools open. So <laughs> we, we've won the policy debate. OK, the, the debate over the facts. People know that the school closures were a mistake. But the politics of it are much more complicated because um, the places that are more conservative generally have pretty short school closures. They basically they blew out the end of the 2019-2020 school year, but they generally open pretty much on time uh, for the next school year. And uh, they, they didn't have the massive prolonged closures of you know, a full year or more that we had in the liberal cities and the places where the teachers unions and the Democrats are really strong. And of course, in those places, um, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to say, Oh, I wish we'd been like Ron DeSantis because they hate Republicans. So it's, you know, it sort of the geography of this issue means it's probably not going to be as helpful politically as it might otherwise be because the, the places that uh, really care about it, are probably the ones that were the least harmed by what happened. So I don't know the answer to your question, but I think that the way that you need to talk about it in a political context is uh, more broadly about what it means for the future of education and what's going on in this country. And of course, you know, we've got, I think, seven or eight states now that did major school choice laws this year, including Florida, which already had one of the best school choice laws, expanded it uh, substantially further. And so most families in Florida now will be able to qualify for, you know, for, you know, scholarships if they do want to send their kids uh, to a private or parochial school. But I think that's really the the key thing, the key thing where you can appeal to everyone to say, look, you know, there were a lot of mistakes made in the schools on, in COVID. A lot of places closed down for a very long time that shouldn't have. A lot of families were harmed by it. Um, let's have the protection against that happening again, that you can control the educational dollars for your children, for your family. And if the local school system goes crazy, uh, and they go crazy on the curriculum or they go crazy on closing down again or masking kids, whatever it might be, you'll have an option. Even if you're not rich enough to otherwise afford one, you'll have an option because we're going to have uh, choice programs. And so I think that that's where you can really score political points. And I was pretty encouraged uh, that DeSantis raised the school choice issue as one of his top issues in that uh, Fox interview he did. I think he said it was one of his top three issues. Now, the challenge, of course, is that it really is primarily a state and local issue, how you fund education. Uh, but if we're going to have a massive, massive multi-billion dollar federal department of education, 
then there are an awful lot of thumbs on the scale in the wrong direction that you could remove and other incentives you could put in in the right direction. So, you know, I'd like to get rid of that department entirely and just either send that money to the states or just cut it out of the federal budget. Uh, but given that, you know, we've been trying to do that since Reagan without any great success, reorienting that department more in, in, in towards, you know, ways to empower parents and families and, and have more choices could be kind of a federal approach uh, to the education issue more broadly. But I think you've got to you've got to um, you got to talk about what went wrong, talk about not allowing the same people to have the power to do it again in the future. But I think that the solution can't just be like, oh, I'm never going to lock down again, because if somebody's in a blue city. And they hear that, you'll say, great, but you don't, you're not who did it to me last time. It was my mayor, it was my school board, or it was whatever local person, and they're going to be Democrats forever in a lot of these places. And so I think the messaging kind of in a national political context needs to be more about, you know, this is how we're going to give you more choices and more opportunity to get, a, get away from that local school system if they do these things. That school, that education building in D.C., my golly, what a monolith. That thing is up and down four or five blocks, I ride by it and I say, my golly, what in the world can they be doing in there? Right. I mean, I don't, they have, they have huh? a lot of employees and the vast majority of them are doing nothing good. I know they're not teaching. The other thing that's crazy about the way our education system is set up now in this country, I mean, the federal government is, I don't know, 10% of school spending. It's some very small percentage, but they want to tell everyone what to do on everything. <laughs> oh, God. oh, golly. Well, uh, what have you learned? I'm looking at your article here there. Uh, there's so many pieces of it are so interesting. Uh, you look, you quote the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development Estimates. Um, you go into the Health and Human Services reports. Um, can you give us some background on how you all put this together? How you, you know, where do you start? Uh, and, 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 you know, can walk us through to this product? I mean, that's interesting, I think. Yeah, well, I, I think I started, I started working on this article in, March, and I, I don't think we actually published it until, I don't know, sometime in April. But, you know, the idea was, you know, it had been three years since the school closure started at that, that point. And by the way, school closures, the very first school that closed in this country was Harvard University. And so the supposedly really? smartest, really? the supposedly smartest of the smart did the dumbest thing and started all the other dominoes falling, which I kind of find interesting. Uh, uh, but basically, I, there, there. I probably tweeted all these studies a million times. There's all this stuff out, but I wanted to kind of put put everything in one place. And someone's calling on my phone. I'm going to hang up on them. Sorry, <laughs> whoever that was. Uh, I wanted to put everything in one place so that people could kind of see clearly um, what was going on. I'm going to try to take this off the hook here. Sorry about that. No problem. Wife. Anyway. Uh, I wanted to put everything in one place uh, just to kind of make make the soup to nuts argument, because we're, we're as I said, we've been seeing so much revisionism, uh, particularly from the teachers unions that are trying to avoid responsibility for all the things they did. And um, I, I wanted to just sort of lay out the case. Uh, in, in, for, first of all, that the school closures and then the subsequent school disruptions, because it wasn't just when they were closed, when they were open, they were, some of them were two days a week. Some of them were, you know, with masks and silent lunch and one-way hallways and other prison-like conditions. None of that was conducive to learning. And I, I, we, we should have known better from the beginning. We had a lot of evidence that we shouldn't have done any of this. And in retrospect now, we, we know without a doubt that there was no COVID benefit because approximately 100% of kids got COVID anyway. 
So it was not, there was no upside. There was no benefit. Uh, and the harms were, were pretty significant. So basically, you know, I, I kind of went through the stack of research that I had and all the old tweets and kind of put, put it together into kind of a narrative form of these are all the harms, you know, the, the massive economic harms, the educational harms, the mental health, the physical health, um, then sort of explained that we should have known better and we did know better if they listened to people like us and what we were saying at the time. And, what, and, and, and by the way, the, 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 the week that we lost schools in this country. The week that we that things turned, that the tide turned, uh, was the last week of June, first week of July 2020. And that's when the, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out this really good guidance saying all schools should be open, they should be open full time, don't mask if it's not developmentally, developmentally appropriate, and it's probably not in grade schools, it might not be in middle school and high school. Don't worry about six feet distancing, if you need to do less than that, it's better than sitting kids at home. I mean, it was just, it was everything that I've been saying, and they, they put it out, and I said, great, we've got the official governing body of pediatricians, 60,000 pediatricians, they're saying the right thing, all the schools are going to be open, we're going to have a pretty normal fall, we're going to get things back on track, and then something happened, Ward. Then President Trump came out and said, I want all the schools open. And three days after that, they flipped 180 degrees. They put out a revision to their guidance, which said, you know, yeah, we still want schools open, you know, but if there's a lot of COVID around, then ignore all that stuff we said and keep the schools closed. And of course, there's a lot of COVID around everywhere. So they, they, they essentially undercut their entire case and uh, gave the ammunition to the people who wanted schools closed uh, and and they, they did that in a literal joint statement with the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. So the pediatricians and the two largest teachers unions put out a statement basically saying like, you know, yeah, we want schools open. It would be great to be open, but close them if there's a lot of COVID around. Um, and the only thing that changed in that week between when they said all the schools should be open and when they said close them was that President Trump came out and said this. So, so their hatred and their sort of derangement and their opposition to anything that man said um, really disgraced the governing body for pediatricians in this country. And uh, I, I think that was the moment things really went off the rails. And um, it, it's very sad because pediatricians are supposed to care about kids, not care about disagreeing with a the president they don't like. It's an amazing story. Um, and I have no doubt but what you told it. Uh, correctly, uh, the reaction was simply to to his presence and commitment to it. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, curious to me. Maybe you have some things, some thought, thoughts about this. How far out? Like uh, you drop a rock in the pond, and the ripples go out. As we want to borrow that analogy, how far out and how long in our nation's future these ripples will go, and what? banks of what pieces of land, so to speak, stay with this analogy, will they touch? Well, unfortunately, I think that for a lot of the kids that were affected by these closures and disruptions, uh, they're going to be lifelong impacts. And not, certainly not all of them. Uh, some have already caught up and some didn't fall very far behind anyway, but particularly um, a lot of kids in lower resource families, maybe where the parents couldn't have someone stay home and shepherd the kid through Zoom school and uh, they, you know, they didn't have resources for extra help and whatever you're gonna you're gonna have kids that as a consequence of this have lower lifetime educational attainment maybe don't finish high school when they otherwise would have or 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 maybe you know don't go to college when they otherwise would have or don't get as far in whatever subject it might be 
And we know from a very large body of research that the level of educational attainment you have is pretty strongly related to lifetime income and pretty strongly related to life expectancy. And so that's why there was actually a study uh, that was done in the Journal of the American Medical Association on the original school closures, the blowout of that 2019-2020 school year. They actually found that the number of life years lost from that would be larger than the life years lost from COVID, which is to say, you know, we lost, you know, you had a million some COVID-associated deaths, but a lot of them were people who were older, so maybe, you know, they lost, you know, five or ten years of life, something like that. But for all of these millions of kids, for this, you know, the 70 million school kids in this country who had a disruption of school, you know, they might live one or two years shorter now, but it's there's mm-hmm. so many of them. Uh, that that actually could be a greater loss of life years, which is pretty incredible to think about. And that was just for the end of the 2019-2020 school year. Then you had a lot of places that had very long closures the next school year as well. And, uh, you know, the difference in life expectancy between a high school dropout and a high school graduate is about five years. Now, that's average. Averages are average. There are lots of people who are outside of these averages. But, you know, that's a big difference. And you look at the numbers that recently came out from a Stanford University Associated Press study, and they found that there are 250,000 kids in this country whose whereabouts are unknown, which is to say they dropped out of the public schools. They did not go to private schools. And as far as we know, they're not being homeschooled. Well, what are they doing? Are they in gangs now? Are they doing drugs? Are they uh, are they suffering mental health problems at home. Um, yeah, I, I think that, unfortunately, not only are many of these kids never going to be significant economic contributors and be able to support themselves, but some of them that have fallen off the radar may come back onto the radar in ways that are spectacularly destructive, like the, like the racist supermarket shooter in Buffalo, New York, who said that he became radicalized out of extreme boredom uh, during school yeah. lockdowns when he started reading racist websites. So how many more of these kids will show up in really, really destructive ways like that? I hope none, but I would be surprised if we don't see uh, at least some more of those. I have a suggestion here for more research, and I know you guys do a lot. And I never thought of this before, but is there a correlation? I know correlation is not causation, but the increase in homelessness on the streets related to COVID? Uh, because, by golly, it's all over some of these big cities now and pretty much is well along the way of destroying the quality of life in these big cities. And nobody's diagnosing these people, so to speak. Um I happen to believe that a lot of it's mental mental illness. It's put people there. Has anybody thought about looking at that, or is that even how would you get a handle on that, Phil? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think the um, you know the, these social problems are you know they they always have many many factors, and so it's difficult to look at you know specific. It's it's difficult to answer that specific question, but how could it not be a contributor when you shut down millions of businesses, you got millions of people who would otherwise be working, who are not working. Uh, Some of them are going to fall into drugs or fall into despair. And some portion of that are going to end up on the street. And of course, you know, the other thing that happened, which was during COVID, although only, you know, partially related to it, of course, is, you know, two months after they locked everyone down and they said, you can't go outside and you can't talk to other people and you can't see other people. They had the 
George Floyd BLM riots. <laughs> that was just two months later. That was May. Yeah, of yeah, that's right. And all of these public health people who said you need to like hide in your basement. You can't go to work. You can't go to school. They said, oh, but you can go to a riot. You can go to a protest. Racism is even worse than COVID. This is the most important public health thing ever. We totally endorse this. And so you had um, this kind of astonishing circumstance where the one uh, sort of officially sanctioned social activity was to conduct riots, essentially, and to demonize and attack the police. And, you know, I think that we saw a, a withdrawal of policing in all of the big cities. They basically said, look, we're, we're you know, I, I don't know if they said it intentionally or if it was just a reaction to what was happening, but we saw, you know, we saw arrest rates plummet. Even where there were arrests, we saw prosecutions plummet. So part of this is a prosecutor problem. Uh, but essentially, we saw a collapse in law enforcement, even traffic enforcement mostly collapsed, which is one of the reasons that traffic fatalities went way up, even though many fewer miles were being driven. As you know, they're just there was people were speeding everywhere, driving recklessly because they knew they weren't going to get pulled over. So you have police largely withdrawn as a result of what happened and, and the rioting and the anti-police and, and uh, BLM and all of that. And so you had kind of a collapse of law enforcement while you also have less you know, normal productive economic activity because they shut down the, the schools and the businesses and the restaurants. And so downtowns were like these downtowns of big cities were like these hollowed out sort of post-apocalyptic the only things going on were bad things, basically riots and crime and open air drug scenes and very little law enforcement. Um, you know, that's a very, <laughs> you know, that whole mix, I think, is what resulted in what we've seen and why so many cities really haven't come back from the lockdowns. Because you lock them down, you close legitimate businesses, but then you basically give a green light to criminal activity and uh, you can really cause damage that's very hard to bounce back from. Now, a lot of places, um, there were pretty relatively short lockdowns and they were able to open things back up. And of course, this is one of the reasons that Florida and Texas and Arizona have really boomed. It's sort of, it's sort of the opposite. The people who are fleeing places like Minneapolis and San Francisco and New York, they went to those Southern States that were, they mostly had their businesses open. They were kind of normal. They were kind of escape places. And not only did they go for vacation, a lot of them moved there. And so we had these major domestic migration flows as well, but uh, I'll tell you what's happened in a lot of these old liberal cities, uh, you know, Chicago, San Francisco, New York. I mean, San Francisco is the worst. I mean, it's completely hollowed out. Um, you know, it definitely started with the COVID lockdowns. Uh, but I don't know that you can say that was the main thing and not, you know, what happened two months later. It's sort of hard to separate it all. But it, it was a, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very bad uh, sort of one-two punch to have the lockdowns followed two months later by the riots. I think you made an excellent point that you shut down the businesses in downtown city, like San, uh, San Francisco, and you create this zombie land that fills in with people who behave in a way they wouldn't behave if those businesses had never shut down. I, I, I never haven't heard anybody else discuss this, approach this from this point of view, and. I think it's probably the first time anyway on the Ward Scott files we've heard it talked about. Um, I think it's definitely something to it. I mean, if you're going to shut down the businesses um, and just turn your back on it until, quote, unquote, everything passes, then it's going to be it's going to be filled. This void's going to be filled. And look at what we got. Now we can't come back and open the businesses because we've got more of the uh, people who came in when the businesses were closed. And then we do businesses who can push them out. And 
That's interesting dynamics. That's very fascinating. Uh, we're talking with Phil Kirpin here, President of American Commitment. Uh, if you missed that point, I think you ought to come back and revisit it, students, because it is um, most interesting. Um, and one I haven't heard talked about, that doesn't mean it hadn't been talked about somewhere else. But, you know, it is on everyone's mind, the decay of these liberal Democratic-run cities. And we know that the liberal mayors and all that were very adamant about closures. So we can trace this um, cause and effect relationship, at least partially, and make some observations and then speculate from then on. Um, what, what we don't know, Ward, is if they had just done the closures but not followed it up by endorsing riots two months later, would they have been able to bounce back more? And they probably would have, you know, they, it couldn't have been as bad as it is. I mean, it was that. And, and the other thing is, it was so fast. It was so fast. It was like a whiplash. It was, everything's got to be closed. You can't leave your house. And the next thing you know, we endorse these riots and the police should do nothing. And it was, it was head spinning how quickly it happened. Uh, of course, it seemed like a long time at the time, because when you're in lockdown, it's sort of time feels stretched out. But it was a very quick. It was, you know, it was March and then May. And uh, they, they, they did that. And, and by the way, you know, I actually think that the collapse of blue cities and the massive domestic migration that we've seen in the last couple of years is sort of the ultimate political argument for this next presidential election. You know, ah. whoever the Republican candidate is. Uh, um, obviously, if it's DeSantis, he's got a great story to tell because Florida is the place everyone's moved. But even if it's Trump, he can tell the same story, which is basically like, look, the places that are doing the things that the liberals want us to do are the places everyone's trying to escape. OK, you can't. That's the unanswerable argument, right? That he's, oh, no, California, New York are wonderful. Their liberal ideas are so much better. And say, really? Why is everyone leaving? There's just there's no answer to that. Argument. Or getting killed, either leaving or getting shot. Well, know, yeah, well, there's some of that, too. But I just mean the, the domestic mugged migration on, numbers. Or, or mugged down the subway, you know. Or did you know that if California continues its current rate of population loss from the last two years through the end of the decade, they will lose five congressional seats in 2030? Really? Well, I'm for that. Oh, boy. Let's come back on that. We're talking with Phil Kirkman. We've got to take a break here. Hello, little boy. Lloyd Bailey, um, we're going to be back in a moment with uh, Ward's Weather Reports brought to you by Lewis Oil. And uh, if you got a chat question, I'm looking at the chat line and we'll pass it along and try to discuss it. Be right back on the Ward Scott Files in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, 
you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to Ward Scott Files with Ward's Weather Report brought to you by Lewis Oil. Yes, fossil fuel, Chevron. Great supporter of Wendell Lewis. Fill up at Chevron and you'll support the Ward Scott Files too while you're doing that. And you'll get across town without having to charge your battery of your EV. Huh? How about that? 68 degrees right here. We got a cold spell, if you want to call it that, outside the compound center here. Uh, We're only going to go up to about 77 degrees here. We actually slept, if you can believe it, in Florida with the windows open last night uh, because it was cool and um it was almost like being in Wisconsin or something in the middle of the summer. Very unusual. Now, as far as the weather goes, there's a low pressure development off the southeast coast that is probably going to clobber our good buddy and supporter, Plantation Mark in Virginia there. And I'm thinking about his garden, and I hope everything doesn't wash out. Uh, but we've got a major development, tropical development there. Doesn't have a name right now. So, and I think it's going to miss us, but it's going to bring uh, some rain across this area, hopefully. We need things to turn green here. So uh, if you're going up the coast, uh, and probably it'll be coming Phil Kirpin's way, I think, in D.C. Uh, before too long, this thing looks as if it's going to meander right up and head out to New York, and it does its thing across the Atlantic then. So we'll see what it's got going, but it certainly has rain. Uh, we're talking with Phil Kirpin here. We've been going down some interesting uh, conversation threads here, and that is what is the correlation between COVID and homelessness on the streets in these big liberal-run cities. We don't know how to calculate that, but we definitely believe, and Phil pointed this out, I think it's an excellent point I've heard nowhere else, that once these businesses, restaurants and the like, closed down because of COVID in these cities, that vacuum or void, if you will, was filled with the homeless people who came in. And now that the businesses want to open back up, the homeless, lo and behold, have taken over. So people are fleeing if you will, these cities. Um, there might be, an Ill, you know, the, the old sailor adage, there never was an ill wind that didn't blow somebody a good. Phil just pointed out that if California keeps losing population at the, at the rate at which it's losing it, it's going to lose representative seats too. And that might be a blessing. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll play that game on down the line. Uh, if you got a chat question, please uh, uh, put it on the chat line here and we'll uh, bring it up with you. Uh, and Phil and I will talk about it. Well, 
Phil, um, um, we were talking off of uh, Mike here a little bit about um, where we go from here politically with uh, our leadership uh, on the nation. And uh, you were talking to us about DeSantis because we're here in Florida. And uh, DeSantis has a track record. I mean, he has a he's accomplished things. And we just hope, I guess, the way we're looking at it is that Trump and DeSantis don't beat each other up and let the Democrats squeak in again and ruin the country even further. I hope that minefield can be navigated. Um, comments on that, sir? I know we talked about it off camera here. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I like both of them. I think I like DeSantis a little bit better because, you know, I was so into all this COVID stuff and he was just so solid. He wasn't just solid on it policy-wise. He actually knew all this stuff. You know, he was he knew why the CDC was wrong because he had read all the studies. And so, I mean, I, that was very unique for a politician to have that kind of depth. And uh, I, I was very impressed by that. Uh, of course, you know, the thing about Trump and the reason that so many people are going to vote for him is, you know, the he, he's been so unfairly attacked and savages and oh. savaged, savaged and smeared. And it just makes you want to rally to his defense. And of course, you know, we all remember all the liberals crying on election night 2016. And everyone wants to feel that again. So I think that's a lot of why people say, you know, really stick it to the left by by going with Trump again. But, I, you know, I agree with you that uh, the big thing is winning the general election, whichever one of them it ends up being, or even if it ends up being Tim Scott or someone else. I think, you know, that's unlikely, but who knows what could happen. Um, the big thing is not letting Joe Biden or, God forbid, Kamala Harris have eight years because the amount of damage they've already done in, in you know, two and a half is pretty extreme. And, uh, you know, we need to get things back on track, particularly, um, you know, people forget how good the economy was before oh, yeah. the shutdowns, how good energy policy was under Trump. Just, you know, the, the things that have gone really badly can be fixed and can be fixed pretty quickly uh, if we get sensible people back in. And so, you know, winning the general election has got to be the thing. I know there's, these guys are going to kill each other and, you know, well, that's what primaries are about, but they, it, the, the big thing is coming together at the end of it. And so I will support, you know, whoever ends up being the nominee, uh, I, whether I support in the primary, I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet, but I, I do. Uh, I, I am a, a huge DeSantis fan. Even going back to when he was in Congress, uh, you know, the, the first time I ever met him was in his congressional office uh, because he was the key guy on an issue that we were working on, which was trying to blow up the deal that Boehner did with Obama to exempt Congress from Obamacare. And he was one of the only members of Congress that was willing to skunk the party up there and try to undo that deal. Uh, which to me shows a lot of guts <laughs> to basically say, I want to take, you know, the good, the, the wonderful gold plated healthcare away from all of my colleagues, uh, was not a popular thing to do. And so, you know, he, he was a guy you know, from the first time I met him that I thought, you know, I had a lot of guts and that I really respected. And so I'm a big fan. Um, but I'm not one of these anti-Trump guys. So, I, you know, whoever it ends up being would, would be fine with me. Well, you're absolutely right. We all know about the relentless set of lies, really, and uh, that were visited upon Trump's character. And, you know, you talk about ad hominem attacks, that's all it's ever been. It's never been anything by the Democrats that I can even recall taking on any of the policies he had. Um, they've even come around in many ways and tried to imitate Trump's stance when, of course, maybe they were pushed to it on the border. Uh, they've realized as the election gets closer they better get closer to what Trump wanted with the border than what they want with the border. It's just sheer 
political maneuvering by Biden's crowd to claim, oh, we've always been for border security. Come on. Who are you kidding? What is near? I hope we don't buy into that. Well, Ward, you know, they've got, they've got, they've got millions of people coming across the border. They hand them, they hand them a free cell phone and then they, they give them a, uh, they give them a court date that's two or three years from now. And they say, you know, show up in court in three years. <laughs> you know, this is, yeah. I, I, I really don't think that they have any credibility if they say they're for border security on this current administration. I mean, that doesn't fool anyone, does it? Not in the least. And I don't quite understand um, the shameless uh, approval, tacit approval, if you will, of allowing everybody to be dumped in the cities. I mean, in, in, in uh, 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 a viewer right now is just reminding us that, you know, they're living in hotels in New York City, displacing veterans. Um, they're actually, uh, the governor of New York said she's going to move a whole bunch of the illegals from New York City to, to Buffalo, uh, and they're going to put them in college dorms. So I'm sure <laughs> the people of Western New York are going to be very happy with it. Although the county executive there said he would welcome them. He said he's all for it because he's a big liberal Democrat. And it's like, okay. I mean, I, I, they, it, I, I think it was a very smart thing that uh, Governor Abbott did when he started busing uh, the illegals to these northern cities, because uh, even though they have it on, a, they have the problem now on a much smaller scale than he's got in Texas. They're starting to see some of the practical realities, and uh, it, it's. Uh, I, I think it's been a helpful exercise, uh, especially seeing what's happening in New York. You know, one of the things has also been going on that uh, people are not uh, really hearing much about. Hopefully, they will. Is this? Um, we've talked about it on the show. Um, forcing pension funds to devote commitment to DEI, you know. Um, DeSantis has fought that. I mean, he's not let that happen in Florida. Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. This was actually, Biden's had three or four vetoes now, but this was the very first veto that he had was on a bill uh, to restore the Trump fiduciary standard. Uh, which actually got enough Democrats to pass. It actually got to Biden's desk and, and he vetoed it. And it's a really interesting issue because, you know, historically, the investment manager of a retirement fund or a pension fund um, had a fiduciary obligation to maximize risk adjusted financial returns for investors. That's what the word fiduciary always meant. I mean, that's like the definition of the word until a few years ago, the left wing activists decided that, well, Part of being a fiduciary could be advancing the non-financial interests of your investors by, you know, pursuing, you know, fossil fuel boycotts for climate change or LGBT or social justice or whatever left wing political agenda you want. And, you know, even if they get less money for retirement because of that, you're helping them because, you know, they're better off because the world is safe from global warming or racism or whatever it might be. And so they they basically redefine the word fiduciary into meaninglessness um, as a way to bring left wing politics into retirement funds and to deploy pension funds essentially to advance left wing political objectives. And in the Trump administration, the Labor Department actually did a rule prohibiting this. And so Trump, they put a rule out that said, no, fiduciary means fiduciary. You can only consider financial factors. Non-pecuniary factors are irrelevant to the fiduciary obligations of a fund manager. And uh, that was really smart. That was a really good thing that the Trump administration did because it cut the legs out from under this whole movement. And basically it said, look, if you're a fund manager and you want to do this stuff, 
you better be able to prove it's actually in the financial interest of your investors or otherwise you're going to have potential legal exposure. You're going to violate your fiduciary duty if you pursue left-wing politics. And of course, when Biden came in, his labor department got rid of it. They got rid of Trump's rule. They actually put a new rule that said, you know, anything goes, you know, fiduciary can mean whatever you want it to mean, which means it means nothing. And, you know, go crazy with left-wing political, you know, climate change, LGB, social justice, DEI, whatever it might be. Um, and Congress, which is rare because they do almost nothing up there, they actually mustered enough votes to repeal what Biden did and put the Trump vote back in. And so they passed a bill that did that, uh, but Biden vetoed it and they didn't have enough votes to override his veto. So it was a little ping pong back and forth and back and forth. But at the end of it now, um, it's totally legal for the managers of retirement funds to intentionally give you less money for your retirement, less money in your account so that they can pursue your non-financial interests, how, how they, what they believe is in your non-financial interests on things like climate change and social justice and so forth. So this is a huge problem. It's a huge issue. And if you can control your retirement funds, and some people can, some people can't. If you're in a self-managed 401k, you, you typically have many choices. If you're in a pension fund that someone else manages, you may not have choices. But if you're in a, uh, if you do have choices, if you can control where that money goes, um, take a look at the website pensionpolitics.com. Uh, this is a project of another group that I work with called Committed Unleashed Prosperity. Uh, and we've got ratings of every fund management company based on their ESG behavior. And you can see the ones that are doing all the left-wing stuff and the ones that are not. And, you know, if you're in one of the ones that's been doing this stuff, you got to think about calling them and telling them to knock it off or maybe moving your money somewhere else. Uh, because the under the Biden administration, you're not going to get any help from the regulators or from, you know, I mean, they're going to say, go wild. So you're going to have to, to the extent you can, uh, steer away from the companies that are doing this stuff. Well, there's an article, too, to back this up and make it even more uh, uh, kind of comprehensive in its destructive nature by a fellow named Ben Lieberman uh, in the Wall Street Journal last week talking about uh, climate change agenda affecting such thing as incandescent light bulbs. Um, beginning in July, commercial retailers will no longer be able to sell incandescent light bulbs. Um, uh, let's see what else we got here. Maybe you, you, you're up on this. Furnaces like stoves, um, they'll be running on natural gas. So uh, we're going to have a proposed furnace rule um, that has a minute, Biden's a war on natural gas. Uh, washing machines, uh, they're going to be ratcheted down liable levels of energy and water as dishwashers. Um, uh, the American way of life, pretty much, air conditioning. Well, Ward, you forgot the biggest one, which is automobiles. Uh, you know, oh, the- yeah, yeah. Well, these are the ones that... Kind of under the radar is the point of this, yeah. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Those are those are under the radar, but I don't know. You know, I don't know that people really understand what's happening with automobile regulations under this administration because they've got a mandate for model year twenty twenty five, which is going to be on the lots next year. Uh, model year twenty twenty five, they're mandating seventeen percent of vehicles sold be electric vehicles. Now we're only at about seven percent right now, so they're trying to more than double it. And uh, what's going to happen is the the vast majority of manufacturers won't be anywhere near that, which means they won't be able to meet the fuel economy standards. Then they're going to have to buy regulatory credits, uh, which is going to drive up the price of internal combustion vehicles, hundreds, probably thousands of dollars uh, for those regulatory credits. And of course, if the market overall 
doesn't have enough electric vehicles, even with Tesla and all the rest of it to hit those numbers, then you're going to actually have shortages. You're going to have not enough, you know, gas and diesel powered vehicles available for everyone who wants them to be able to get them. And of course, that's going to create a lot of upward pressure on prices also. And then model year 2026, they make it much worse. (laughs) Even they ratchet it up even more. And so, you know, if we have, uh, if we don't have a change in direction on automobile policy, and I don't think we're going to get one unless we change the president, if we don't have a change in direction on automobile policy, it's going to get pretty soon within a couple of years to where most people cannot afford to buy an internal combustion vehicle anymore because the price are going to go haywire. And the only things that are going to be available to most people are going to be electric vehicles. And uh, those, of course, are going to have crazy government subsidies and all the rest of this kind of stuff. But if you have a lifestyle that's not conducive to an electric vehicle, and most people in this country do, you're going to have a huge problem and you're probably going to have to keep your old car indefinitely. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that the, the agenda of this current administration and the, of the left in, more broadly against all this stuff, against all the fossil fuels and the appliances and everything else, but especially on automobiles, uh, they want, their end goal is to have Americans living in high-rise apartments and out of single-family homes and taking buses and not owning a car. That's like their utopia. And that's their dream. We've actually had some liberal politicians say this, say that that's their goal. Uh, but I think for the vast majority of Americans, they would prefer to keep their single-family homes and their personal vehicles. And I, I hope this is something Republicans really lean into because I do think that uh, you know the future of of kind of the the automobile kind of lifestyle and the freedom that it brings is very much in doubt uh, with the current political direction of the Democrats. And, you know, let's not omit the farm vehicles. We run our tractors by diesel. And already we've been impacted. The wise thing to do now is to, if you can find it, buy a used diesel tractor of several years of age because they don't have all the restrictive um, gear on the uh, engine that loads up the diesel and keeps you from being able to run it all day. Diesel tractors, the great thing about them, you don't turn them off. Uh, you go out and you work and you keep them running. But, you know, you can't do that with the model, modern ones because well, of Are they all computerized now? Yeah, they're computerized. You know, you can't get a shade tree mechanic. Uh, the shade me, so many things that are kind of not thought of. You know, there's no more shade tree mechanics. That guy, I mean, guys who come out to your property, um, turn the wrench, know the uh, once upon a time, I got a 1976 Ford tractor. Now okay? you probably have to be a computer programmer to figure out what's wrong. I, I have one of my tractors is a 1976 Ford. The guy who has now died could come out and wire it with his eyes closed, <laughs> reaching under the panel, you know, because he knew everything. It was easy. Now, with a more modern tractor, which I've avoided getting into, you've got to have the dealership come and pick it up, expensive, 100 bucks anyway, to tow it into the dealership and have all the specialized equipment to work on, you know, servicing your diesel tractor. God forbid you find a gas tractor. Well, yeah. The manufacturer probably makes them license the software and uh, it's probably, uh, it's a, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole closed system now because everything is software based now. So they can, uh, they can lock out competitors and they can, uh, and someday, one of the things I fear with all this stuff going computerized is uh, someday they'll let government shut your stuff off. 
Well, here's the other thing. The same thing that's happened to medicine, corporate takeover of the independent doctor's offices, has happened to the independent tractor dealerships. Um, I know a fellow who had a John Deere independent. He, he a great guy. You want to you know, go there? That's where you bought your tractor, okay? They came along and told him, uh, hey, listen, you're not going to individually own this franchise anymore. We're going to take it away. It's going to be corporately owned, and you're going to be an employee of us. You follow? Well, he said, okay, take that particular version. I won't tell you the version now. I'll take that particular version of tractor and stick it, and I'll go get some other version. And he still is an independent tractor dealership, but he's not the dealership he was before with the brand because the so brand switched to a different manufacturer. Yeah, switched, and, you know, it's more difficult to, and actually tractors made overseas. Most of the tractors are made overseas in India. So <laughs> these are the things that I don't know how presidential debate takes them up, but uh, it's really affects um the viability of one of the strongest part of our country, which I think is going to be a big mistake that we turned our back on our agrarian lifestyle, our agricultural lifestyle. Well, a lot of this, a lot of this relates, uh, you know, a lot of the economics of this relate to the energy policy changes that we had. You know, I mean, the last administration, we had very cheap energy because we had a, a huge product, increase in production of oil and gas in the United States. And that has huge economic benefits, you know, not just for consumers, but obviously for businesses and for farms in particular have a lot of energy inputs uh, and fertilizer, which is, of course, you know, related to the energy prices. Um, you know, under Biden, we've had huge increases in energy prices and it's happening from multiple directions because you have the direct regulatory attacks and sort of the obvious stuff uh, from the federal government. But then you also have the indirect the backdoor attacks with things like you know woke capital and deploying you know esg funds and making you know, making it difficult to invest in oil and gas and so you know, i think that the one of the best arguments that trump has uh is that he can bring back his same energy policies that he had before and he can do it pretty quickly and i think that's going to be you know one of the key one of the really key arguments for this presidential election is going to be on energy policy because the current administration wants expensive energy. They won't say it quite that way, but no, they no. want people not to be able to afford oil and gas. They want everything to be switched to electric. They want everything to be computerized and plugged in and under centralized control. And ultimately, uh, as I said, they want most of the population to be in high-rise apartment buildings and take buses and not even have personally owned vehicles. That's their vision. Uh, that's their utopian vision. And the irony of it, of course, Ward, is you know, they're trying to change our whole land use and our whole lifestyle at a time where the liberal cities are in total collapse, right? The exactly. places that most follow their model that they want for all of us are the places everyone's fleeing because they're in total collapse and failure. And so we do need to, I think, kind of connect these dots for voters because uh, otherwise, if we have, you know, if we have the current direction that we've been on for three years, if it goes on for eight years, it's going to be very, very hard to get. Oh, it. buddy. Oh, wow. No, it's not going to be good. And it can get actually quite ugly. And um, well, you look in Europe now, you've got countries that are seizing farmland. You look at what's happened, what you look at what's happening in the Netherlands and in uh, they're having a huge backlash because they're basically, you know, I mean, the, the, this stuff can go much farther than you think it would. Uh, we're already seeing that in some places. And DeSantis has just signed legislation saying that if you are associated with the Chinese Communist Party, you cannot buy any land in Florida. Did you know that? Yeah, he just did that. Yeah. 
it's uh you know i I, I, they would do it to us. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was mis- misrepresented in the press. They said anybody uh, who's Chinese could not buy land. You know, this is another little subtle thing they do. In the well, that's a big difference, of course. That's yeah, a big it's a big difference. If you're Chinese, you can still buy land. But if you're the Chinese Communist Party, no, you're not buying land. Now, I don't know how that goes, part, uh, you know, being documented. You know, when Disney came in originally and bought land in Florida, they never, the agents never said they were with Disney. They came independently of each well, other. They said they were in Disney. They probably would have had to pay a lot. Right. They came in independently of each other and they went up to the old farmers and they said, Hey, you know, we like to buy 20 acres. And, and, and his farmer said, Who wants this? Because back then, the, you know, there was nothing here you could do with the land except Brahma cattle. That's what we were known for. And, um, turns out when it was all done, it was all a quilt stitched together with all these agents working for Disney whom if they had revealed themselves in the beginning, the farmers would have said, well, wait a minute, we want more money than that. Right. You know, now this has all been a sweetheart arrangement with Florida from the very beginning. Disney always has had its own type of government that, you know, could gave the international fighter pilots salute to anything the state wanted to do that everybody else had to dance to, the fiddle they had to dance to. Well, DeSantis is the first one to call that out. And he's getting blamed for being. Well, I think he's on. I think he's on very solid ground. You know, I have pretty young kids, and uh, we had to uninstall the Disney app from all our TVs because the programming on there is totally inappropriate. I mean, it's really gone crazy. And I don't know if people who don't have kids even know this, but I mean, every single uh, every single show on there has like you know LGB or whatever left way. It's just there's no there's no just normal stuff. There's always they have to throw it in, and you know it's. If you have little kids, it's it's not it's not appropriate. They they've kind of gone off the rails, and you know the when they said that they were going to start dictating policy to the state of Florida and saying that they were going to make sure that you didn't remove you know sexual content from grade schools, I, you know it's not it's not abuse of power for the government to say. Well, if you're doing these things, we're not going to give you special favors. And I think that's, uh, you know, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that's what your governor did. Exactly. The governor said, um, you know, why should you get these exemptions that um, nobody else gets when you are not following the rules or cultural standards everybody else is following? And I think especially in a Republican primary context, being against Disney is only going to be a positive for him. People are very angry at Disney. You know, kind of Republican primary type voter type people are not are not happy with the direction of that company. Well, we're out of time, and it's, you know, it's always goes fast talking with you, Phil. And I always, I look forward to having you on the show, Phil Kirpin from AmericanCommitment.org. And he mentioned PensionPolitics.com if you want to go see who has been uh, liberalized as a corporation that you've got your money involved in, you want to get out of. That is. PensionPolitics.com. Phil, thanks for coming on. Have a great day. Say hello to everybody, to your wife and kids. And uh, I don't know. I think the Celtics are going to win, brother. <laughs> it would be pretty. Well, that, you, you know, if the Celtics win, then at least I could say, you know what, the Knicks would have lost the next round anyway. If the Heat win, <laughs> you know, it's like this would have been the year if they could have made one more shot. So, <laughs> Okay, man. Have a great weekend. Uh, have a good one. Command center out. <laughs>